please turn your Bibles to Genesis 15. And if you are able to, if you would stand with me as we read these words together of Genesis 15, where we've uh, been looking at the life of Abraham, we come here to Genesis 15, and uh, this is, is what we read. Verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. You may be seated. May God encourage us through uh, the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we think here of Abraham and, and his faith, and our request this morning would be that you would help us to understand the faith that Abraham had here and that we would emulate it. And our praise to you is that you are a God who counts our faith, credits it to us as righteous, as though we had been righteous. That you allow us to receive your righteousness. Father, we know that there are many in this room who are hurting this morning. We know that there are many in our body who are struggling We would ask for your grace upon them. Pray for those who are in the hospital. Even this morning, we would ask for just great peace for them and and help us to 
be a, a source of encouragement for them. We pray that uh, they would receive this comfort and comfort others uh, with the comfort that's in your son Jesus. And that this, uh, the, the burdens, the trials in our lives would cause us to cling closer to you as we recognize that we are unable to deal with these things on our own. And I, I pray for us as we, uh, all of us, wherever we are this morning, that we, we look at this, this passage we be transformed, that we'd be men and women of faith. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. By God's grace, uh, I have not found myself in a lot of conflicts in ministry. Uh, God's been very gracious to me, to our church, that I don't find myself in controver- controversial situations very often, and in controversies or arguments or debates. And that's very nice, very gracious of God. Uh, I, I don't enjoy arguing. At least I don't enjoy arguing now. Maybe in my 20s I enjoyed it a little bit more, but, but for sure I don't enjoy just, just debating about, about things and getting people upset. Not a great passion of mine. Uh, I still like people knowing that I'm right, uh, and it's nice when they say that, but I, I don't enjoy arguing to get there. It's nice if it just happens, right? No, seriously, I don't enjoy controversy, don't enjoy arguments. But, but we all know, uh, those of us who are Christians, who hold to the truth of, of God's word about the gospel, we, we know that there are some times when, when confrontations are unavoidable, that there are controversies that we can't help but find ourselves in, and there are some truths that are, are worth arguing about, that are worth making people uncomfortable about. And, and one of those truths, of course, is the truth that we are saved— by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, and, and not any works whatsoever, right? That's, a, that's the truth of the gospel. And in fact, there is no more important truth for a person to understand, no more important truth for a person to believe in terms of knowing how they receive salvation than that truth. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ apart from any works for ourselves. There's nothing we can do in order to earn salvation. All we can do is trust in Jesus Christ. That is an essential truth. It's the truth of the gospel, and it's a truth worth dying for, right? Uh, Much less getting a couple angry emails about, right? That's an important truth, a truth worth arguing about, a truth worth defending. You know, Kent earlier when he was praying talked about being confronted with the truth, and as we think about confrontation and confrontation, that's a truth worth being confronted with, right? Now, as I think about, again, God's been very gracious. I haven't encountered a lot of controversies and arguments in my, my time of ministry, at least not very big ones, and God's been gracious in that. But the times that I have found myself in conflict, most of the time it's been about this issue. It's very interesting, right? Most of the time that I found myself in conflict in ministry, it's been about this doctrine, this truth that we are saved by faith apart from works. And there have really been two groups that I've, I've encountered, uh, that I've engaged in conflict with, disagreement with, sometimes very uh, hard disagreements to work through. And kind of two groups that I've kind of encountered and as I've talked about and tried to defend this this doctrine and talk through what it means. And, and the first group are, are my friends, and, and I mean that word very, very sincerely, my, my friends who are part of the, the Roman Catholic Church. In my ministries, I've talked with my friends who are part of the Roman Catholic Church. This is a doctrine that has led to conflict. And by the way, I'm, 
I'm very grateful to God. I know that in this, this room, even this morning, we have those who have been a part or are a part of the Roman Catholic Church, and we are so grateful to God that you attend uh, with us and, uh, on Sunday mornings sometimes. Very grateful to God for that. But this has been a doctrine, as I've, as I've talked with friends who are Roman Catholics, that has sometimes led to some very, very difficult conversations because even though I believe that Roman Catholics are saved this, the same way that anyone is through faith in Jesus Christ, not every Catholic has done that. In fact, the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church calls that doctrine an anathema, a cursed doctrine, and that, that, beloved, is, it's a big deal, right? It's a big deal. And the other group that I've kind of encountered conflict with, so I've tried to defend and articulate very clearly this, this gospel truth that we're saved by faith apart from works, are evangelicals, uh, Protestants, who don't believe the doctrine is as important as I believe it is. In fact, uh, just, just recently, I uh, had a very dear friend, a very dear friend and I were talking, and uh, this dear friend uh, leads an evangelistic ministry. His ministry is designed to proclaim the good news of the gospel, to proclaim the good news that a person saved by faith, apart from works. And as we talked about people he was partnering with, I said, boy, I just don't think you're being very clear in that truth that you're designing, uh, desiring people to, to accept. And so there, there was... There's tension there. He kind of chided me for that, that statement. And so uh, I'm okay with that, though, right? I'm okay with that. Now, this truth is the truth that we see here in Genesis 15. And what I want us to do is I want us to think about that, because it's a question I've had to ask myself multiple times over the year. How, how important is this truth? Would you agree with me, and, and would you agree with me as we look at Genesis, Genesis 15, that it's an essential truth, it's a truth that we cannot compromise on, a truth that we must hold with our very lives, this truth that our relationship with God is restored, not on the basis of our works, not on the basis of us doing something that God finds acceptable, but on simply placing our trust in him and receiving righteousness that we can't hope to have on our own. Such an important truth to grasp, to believe, to hold to. So what I want to do is this. Uh, l- let's do this. Let's, I want to walk through the story, and then I want to talk about the truth that's contained in there, and then I want to apply it, okay? So let's, let's first of all look at the story. In the story, we see that God makes a covenant with Abraham, and the story begins there in verse 1, after these things. And now what is he talking about? Well, at the end of Genesis 14, Abraham has rescued his nephew Lot, and he restores him there, and the king of Sodom comes to Abraham, and he says that he wants to give him things and uh, give him all the goods from this, this battle, and Abram says at the end of chapter 14 in verse 22, he says, no, 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 I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor, he owns everything, possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I'm going to take nothing except the people that I rescued. And so Abraham doesn't take anything from the king of Sodom. He says, I'm I'm trusting in God. I'm relying upon him. He owns everything. He's going to do what he said he's going to do. And so we come to verse 1 here of Genesis 15, and it says, after these things, after that's happened, the word of the Lord comes to Abraham in a vision. So this is this, this, this uh, communication of God's words to Abraham. And he tells him three things, right? He says, first of all, fear not. 
which is a common thing for God to say when he appears to a person. You can imagine being fearful of God talking to you. And so God says, first of all, fear not, Abram. And then he says, secondly, I am your shield. I'm your defender. I'm the one who's going to to deliver you. Psalm communicates this. Psalm 710, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. And so uh, I'm don't, don't be afraid, Abraham. I'm your shield. And then the third thing that he tells Abraham is, I am your shield and, and your reward shall be very great. The things that I've promised you, I'm going to bring those about. And how does Abraham respond to that? God appears, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. I'm your, your right to trust in me. What you told the king of Sodom is true. You are going to get a great reward. What does Abraham say in response? Look at the text. He kind of complains here, right? He says, okay, God, you said my reward shall be very great. What are you going to give me? What can you possibly have? What's the point? What can can you possibly have that is going to induce me to continue here? See, when we think about incentivizing a person... We think about, okay, I'm, I'm going to tell them if you do something, I'm going to give you something in return, and that thing that I'm going to give you in return is worth whatever misery I put you through in the beginning. So you're talking to your kids, you say, okay, kids, if you uh, are good on the car trip, then we get to this place that we're going, I'll buy you some ice cream or something. And if a kid doesn't like ice cream, that's not a great incentive. Or you say, okay, if you, if you clean your room, I'm going to take you to the library. And the kid says, well, I don't, like, I don't like the library. I don't like reading. So what incentive is that for me to clean my room? If you're going to try to get a person's behavior to be influenced by an incentive, you need to find the incentive that works, right? And Abraham says, God, look, you're saying my reward will be very great. What, why am I supposed to care? I don't have any kids. I remain childless. And we know that Abraham was 75 when he left Haran, and he's not quite 100 yet. He's somewhere between 75 and 100, and he's thinking, you know, seriously, God, what's the point? Whatever you give me, I'm not going to be able to pass on. And you know when a person gets upset and they kind of keep talking? It seems like that's what hap- happens here. He says, okay, uh, what reward can you give me? I continue childless. The, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And he's referring there to this cultural practice that whenever a person wouldn't have any heirs, that a person who is in their, um, in their household will become their heir. They could appoint that person to be an heir. And that's Eliezer here. And Eliezer would take on the responsibilities of a son. He would make sure that Abraham and Sarah were buried properly and their their things were taken care of and then he would receive those things. He'd become the heir. So Abraham says, that's what's going to happen here. And then notice there's there's no time for God to respond between verses 2 and 3. He says it again, Abraham, verse 3. Behold, you've given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. That's Abraham's complaint. Look, uh, God, you say that I'm going to have this reward, but it's kind of pointless because I'm childless. God says this. He says, no. No, no. This guy will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then God takes Abraham outside. He says, look up at these stars and 
In the same way that these stars can't be numbered, so you will not be able to number your descendants. Now, how outlandish is this statement that God makes here? It seems pretty crazy. In fact, to put it bluntly, why does God keep messing with Abraham this way? Why does he keep yanking him around, right? I was listening to, to, to Tim Keller, and I can't remember exactly how he put it, but I, I uh, was listening to him on our, our car trip to Texas, and, and he kind of addressed this passage, and he was, as he was talking about it, he said that there were you know, several points in Abraham's life where he just go, man, that just seems like God is, is messing with him. So he sees Abraham in Genesis 12, and he says, uh, you need to go, leave this place. And Abraham says, well, where am I going to go? And God says, don't worry about it, I'll tell you later. You come here, I'm going to give you a, ch- a child, when? Don't worry about it, I'll tell you later. He, he tells him to sacrifice his son, and Abraham says, how is this going to work out? Don't worry about it, I'll tell you later. Where do I take him? Uh, don't worry about it, I'll show you later. God keeps on asking Abraham to do outlandish things, and believe outlandish promises. Now, why does he do this? Remember what we said the purpose of Abraham's life is. The purpose of Abraham's life within the context of the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible, is to help us understand what a life of faith looks like, specifically a life of faith contrasted with the law. And as Abraham continues to believe God, God places him in situations where only God can work things out. The things that God says he's going to accomplish are not just improbable, they're impossible, and he asks Abraham to continue to believe him that he can do these impossible things. And that's what's happening here. I'm a guy between 75 and 100 years old. My, my wife is 10 years younger And God is telling me to believe that he is going to make my descendants as numerous as the stars and all the things he's promised me in Genesis 12. I mean, I don't know it's in Genesis 12 if I'm Abraham, but all those things, I'm still going to do them. How is Abraham going to respond to that? We'll look at verse 6. And in verse 6, we encounter one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. It says, And Abraham believed the Lord. And that word believes means trusted. He, he believed that what God said he would do, he would do, and, and he acted accordingly. And it says that God then did what? God counted or, or reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now righteousness, this word that is used here, means continual obedience, complete perfect obedience. In other words, it means on Sunday I obey God completely. And then Monday comes along, and Monday morning I obey God completely. And then Monday afternoon I obey God completely. And then the evening night I obey God completely. And then Tuesday comes along and I continue to do it. And Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday I continue to do it. And then the next week comes along and I, and I do it again. That's righteousness, complete, continual obedience. And between you and me, I'm not capable of that type of righteousness, right? On Tuesday, we were having lunch as as a family, last day of vacation, and sitting with the family and kind of thinking about some things that had been exposed in my heart and things I've been praying about. I told the family, I said, um, guys, I recognize that I haven't been just a very gracious person like I, I need to be in, in some things in our family, and, and I'm working on being less critical 
and less perfectionistic. I know that my, my perfectionism is not a godly quality, and I, I want to repent of that and, and make your mom's life a lot nicer and your life a lot nicer. And so I'm working on I want to I'm working on that. And I'm praying that God would change me in that in that area. So, you know, laying my soul bare before my precious children, right? Well, they start messing with me. So, Dad, facts can only leave the water on, and it goes drip, drip, drip. Are you going to talk about the pennies going down the drain? If I leave the light on, Dad, is that going to bother you? If I just kind of turn some of these books a little bit, is that going to bother you? I mean, they just start messing with me. I said, well, here's the deal. My first act of not trying to be perfectionistic is not trying to follow not being perfectionistic perfectly. And yes, all those things will still bother me. (laughs) I said, I'm going to try this perfectionism thing and I'm going to nail it. No, I I, I, I said, no, I'm going to do it, guys. I'm going to do it. By God's grace. And it lasted about 15 minutes. And they laughed. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. God's still, again, God's still working on me, and Whitney and I have a lot of laughs this last week as I've tried to work on this, but I can't do it. You know what I need? I need someone else to do it for me. I need someone else today to not have a critical spirit, and then I need them to do it for me tomorrow, too. For Monday, can you please be, have this non-critical attitude for me on Monday, and then on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, and then Thursday, Friday? I need someone else to do that for me because I can't do it. And here's the amazing thing. Abraham can't be completely obedient before God. You can't be completely obedient before God. And what God does is God takes Abraham's faith and he says, I'm going to count that like righteousness. I'm going to give you righteousness that you don't have through your faith. And that's what God does for you and me as well. As Abraham thinks about this future, these future descendants, and he knows that God has said that the entire world will be blessed through his descendants. And we're talking specifically, Paul says, about Jesus Christ, right? He believes that. He believes in the Messiah. He believes what God has promised. And God counts that belief in a future Messiah as righteousness. And the same is true for you and me. Here in verses 1 through 6, here in verses 1 through 6, we, we see this deal of a a child dealt with. And in verses 7 through 21 in the story, we see the issue of land dealt with. He says, okay, I understand about the child. I believe you about that. And he says, then God says, well, also, I'm going to give you this land in verse 7. And he says, how am I going to know that I'm going to possess it? Again, same question in verse 8. And then God says this in verse 9, bring me a, a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So bring me these animals. And so Abraham it seems a little weird to us, but he goes and he grabs these animals, and then he comes back, and he does something else that seems like really weird. He cuts them in half, except for the birds, because that'd be really weird, right? Man, what, is, what is he doing? Why is he cutting these animals in half? Then he cuts the animals in half, and he puts half the carcass over here and half the carcass over here and kind of creates this, this aisle. Why does he do that? What Abraham is doing it's creating the, and he understands what God is asking him to do here, is creating the conditions for a covenant. You and I live in a, a written culture, right? If you and I wanted to enter into an agreement, 
I was going to agree to do something, you were going to agree to do something, we'd, we'd get a contract, we'd contact a lawyer or two, and they'd write up this document, and then we'd sign it in the presence of some witnesses and a notary. And all. That's, if we, you and I wanted to do something like that, that's how we'd do it. But that's not this culture. This is a visual culture, a culture of action. Throughout, throughout Scripture, you see people doing things to remind them. Of, you, know, you set up stones. You, you make oaths in certain ways. I mean, you do things with, with actions, with your bodies, with, with things you can see in order to, to, to remind yourself to think about these things. And so here, there's this contract. And in, in Scripture, we see this described also in Jeremiah. But a, 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 I'm sorry, not a contract, a covenant describing a relationship. And what you would do is you'd take these animals and you'd, you'd cut them in pieces and you'd, you'd place them on either side and you'd enter this blood covenant with each other. You'd walk down this aisle and before you do, like I'd say, okay, I agree to do something. You say, well, I agree to do something. This is our new relationship. And now we'd walk down the aisle with these animal pieces on either side, which if, you know, if you're planning a wedding, uh, probably not animal carcasses decoration, probably not the way to go, right? Not what you want to decorate the aisle with, but that's what they did here. Jeremiah 34 describes this. Jeremiah 34, 18 says, God says, the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. So just like they tear this calf and they, they tore it apart, and uh, because they didn't keep the covenant, that's what I'm going to do to them. I'm going to make them like the pieces of that carcass. And so as you walked down this aisle of animal carcasses, that's what you're saying. Hey, if I fail to do what I've said to do, may I be like these dead animals ripped apart. It's a pretty powerful visual, right? So that's what Abraham sets up. God says, we're going to enter into this covenant together. And look what happens. Verse 12. The sun's going down and a deep sleep falls on Abram. It's a dreadful and great darkness. And God speaks to him. He says, look, here's the future. Your offspring are going to be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. They're going to be afflicted for 400 years. I'm going to bring judgment on the nation that they serve. You're going to go to your fathers in peace. Verse 15 uh, verse 16, they're going to come back here in the fourth generation for the sin, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, okay, here's the picture. Abraham has got these, these pieces prepared. The aisle is all prepared for them to, to walk down and enter into this covenant relationship together. But then something awesome happens. Abram's asleep. There's this deep, oppressive darkness and there's a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch representing there's, there's the, the presence of God. We see that later in the Pentateuch. Abraham does nothing. And the flaming torch passed between the pieces. And God promised him the land. You say, now why is that so significant? Because what God is saying is he passes between the pieces and Abraham does nothing as he's saying I'm responsible solely for this covenant. Let me read you what someone wrote about this. It's from the book Kingdom Through Covenant. I love how this this person that, that they quote in the book puts it. When God made covenant with his people, he did something no human being would ever consider doing in the usual blood covenant, each party was responsible for keeping only his side of the promise, and so they each walked down that aisle together. But when God made covenant with Abraham, however, he promised to keep both sides of the agreement. 
If this promise is broken, Abraham, for whatever reason, for my unfaithfulness or yours, I will pay the price, said God. If you or your descendants for whom you are making this covenant fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood, is what God is saying. And at that moment, as God passes through the pieces, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence of his son, Jesus Christ. Do you see, do you see here the implication of what God does? God is saying there is no ability that you have to fulfill this covenant. I will do it. It's why we can receive righteousness through faith alone. That's the story. Let's, let's look at the truth then. Here's the truth. The truth is that you and I are justified by faith alone. That justification is by faith alone apart from works. This means that, that I bring 0% to my relationship with God. There, there's, there's nothing that I bring to this table to say, okay, God, let's enter into a relationship because you have this, this cool stuff and then I have this cool stuff. Let's each bring what we have to the table and enter this covenant. No, it's, it's all God. It's all God. It also means, I, not only do I not bring everything, but Christ brings everything, right? Turn your Bibles to Romans 4. Romans 4. This is how Paul puts it. He says, What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but but not before God. And you see what he's saying here? If, if it's true that Abraham did something that allows him to be justified, then he has a reason to be able to boast. It's like, uh, you know, here I am, and, and uh, here's my friend Malcolm, and, and uh, if, if Malcolm does something that I can't do, and God says, well, I'm going to accept Malcolm and not Daniel, Malcolm go, hey, Daniel, <laughs> sorry, buddy, but I guess you just don't have what it takes like I do. That's what he has. He can boast. If Abraham had something that he did, some work that he did that he brought before God, and said, God, oh, that's it. I like you, Abraham, you're in. He can boast. But what does Scripture say, Paul writes? It says, Abraham believed God, and that belief, it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages aren't a gift, they're his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as, as righteousness. In other words, a person who just says, I'm, I'm going to believe, God counts that belief and gives him righteousness. David speaks of this blessing, verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And then Paul talks about how this righteousness was credited to Abraham before the the circumcision. It was before he started being obedient in the area of circumcision. In other words, there's, there's no work that he did. It's not about following the Jewish laws and customs. Come down to verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. 
Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Brothers and sisters, this this truth is so important for us to grasp, to believe, to apply. That God justifies us, that God declares us righteous, not because of any works that we do in order to earn it, but simply because of our faith. I mentioned this on on Friday night, but uh, earlier this week, uh, my daughter came to me and she said, Daddy, if there was a naughty and nice list, uh, which list would you be on? And I I think she was asking that, one, to mess with me, yes. Uh, But also, I think think she was kind of wrestling with that. Like, is Daddy a nice or naughty guy? Because I do try to, as I mentioned about our conversation at lunch, I I do try to be honest with my kids about needing their forgiveness for things. And at the same time, my kids rightly recognize that I'm who God has placed in their life along with their mom and other other believers to to teach them about right and wrong. And so here's this guy who says he does wrong things, asks for forgiveness, and uh, then also is the person that she's learning right and wrong from. Are you on the naughty or nice list, Dad, if there was such a thing? I told her, yeah naughty list. So would you, I told her. So would all of us. I need someone else to live a life of perfection so that I can be counted as nice. So I can be counted as as on the the nice list, as the standard of perfection that God requires to be on the list of those who receive eternal life. You see, brothers and sisters, this isn't some obscure theological concept. Oh, justification by faith alone, that's for the scholars. I'm just going to kind of live my Christian life. No, this clarity is so important for us to grasp. There is nothing that I can bring before God that he can find acceptable. I must understand, I can only be counted acceptable by God through faith because of righteousness that his son Jesus has. Here's the application. Let's think through some application. In the application, how this truth of justification by faith alone exalts God. Number one, the doctrine of justification by faith alone exalts God by showing that he alone is the source of salvation. This doctrinal truth is not some obscure teaching that a bunch of pointy-headed guys and women in the university think about, but it's a truth that affects us greatly because it's a truth that exalts God by showing that he alone is the source of salvation. He's the source of salvation. There is no one else that we can turn to in order to find salvation. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 3, and as you come to Romans 3, remember that in Romans 1, 2, in the first part of 3, Paul has talked about how we all need this righteousness of God. He says, look, if you want the righteousness of God, 
you can't find it if, if you don't know God. You can't just kind of stumble upon finding out about God's righteousness. You, you can't know about God's law by being like a really moral person. You can, or you can't know about God's righteousness by being just a super, super moral person, trying to be a nice guy, a nice gal. You, you can't find righteousness that way. You can't find God's righteousness by being an observer of the law. None of those things are going to be able to allow you to find God's righteousness, to find the, the righteousness that you need for salvation. You can only find righteousness through Jesus Christ, through faith in him. And then he comes to Romans 3, and this is so important to understand why this doctrine is so important. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The right, this is verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, this complete satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. Why did God do it that way? Why, God, why doesn't God allow a person to find his righteousness through morality? Why doesn't God allow others to find his righteousness through other religions? Why doesn't God allow us to find salvation, deliverance from sin in our, in our families? This is why this is so crucial. He did it, Scripture tells us, to show his righteousness. Verse 26 It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has his faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see the beauty there? God doesn't want us to find salvation in anyone else because no one else is righteous like God. If he allowed us to find our salvation in something less than him, it would be a counterfeit salvation, something less than salvation. All in the world, this, this existence can be kind of a mundane place, a place that's sinful, a place that is sad. And we, we try to find deliverance in, in places where you can't ultimately found, find deliverance. Your deliverance from sin will not be found in your job. Your deliverance from sin and the effects of sin will not be found through your family relationships. Your deliverance from sin will not be found in, um, even in, in medicine or in pills or in any sort of t- attempts to escape. There's nothing else that salvation can be found in apart from God's Son, Jesus Christ. This doctrine of justification by faith alone clearly exalts God by saying, look, that's it. No works. No other sources. Salvation is only found in God. Number two, the doctrine of justification by faith alone exalts God by showing that he is the the payment for salvation. He's the payment for salvation. And what we see here in, in Genesis 15 is that, that Abraham doesn't have the ability to enter into this covenant because he can't deal with the consequences of covenant failure. Only God can. Only God can. Only God can make the payment necessary for salvation to be acquired. I mentioned earlier my, my Roman Catholic friends, and, and this is the area where, where we've struggled. But I was, I was reading a, a book by a Roman Catholic apologist that one of my, my friends had, had recommended to me. And 
I believe this book, it's called The Salvation Controversy by James Aiken, Salvation Controversy. And so it deals with the differences between Protestants and Catholics. And I believe it's written very graciously. I think it accurately understands a, a lot of what Protestants believe about salvation. And this, this is what this, this Roman Catholic writer writes. He's ta- it comes to this issue of justification. How does a person, how does a person get, get justified? How does a person get declared righteous by God? And he, he quotes one of the Roman Catholic councils after the Reformation that says this, it's the Council of Trent. This is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And I'm not saying that Rome, all Roman Catholics believe this. I'm just saying this is what my, my friend believes. This is what the, the Council of Trent teaches. And I believe it's a teaching that's contrary to the gospel. This, this truth that I believe is so important. It says this, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, which is what we're saying, but if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone and understands that there's nothing else required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification and so forth, let him be anathema and let, let him be cursed. In other words, if, if a person is saying that you're justified by faith alone and there's nothing else you need to do in order to get justification, let that person, that teaching be accursed. Now, brothers and sisters, and again, I hope you, I hope you capture. I hope you're sensing my tone in this, right? That teaching that there's something else that needs to, to come with, come with in order for us to get justification, that teaching is contrary to the gospel. It's contrary to what I believe is the most central teaching of Scripture, the most important teaching for a person to understand, to understand how to receive eternal life. Now again, I'm not saying that all Roman Catholics reject that, but, but, this, but this Roman Catholic does. He says, he says this, he says, uh, what a person needs in conjunction with, with faith is something called sanctifying grace. And so in other words, you receive faith and you continue to, and I, I would, maybe this isn't the exact words that he would use, but you, you work with that faith in order to obtain eventually justification. And that's contrary, I believe, to what Scripture teaches. It's so important to be clear on this, and it's, important to offend even people we love very dearly because we want them to have eternal life. And many of us are incorrect in our theology. Sometimes we believe some contrary things, and so clarity is so important. Do we understand and do we affirm before God that there is nothing that we can do to bring to God in order to obtain justification, to be declared righteous? Do we understand clearly that we couldn't pass through the pieces? We couldn't be the ones who entered into the covenant with God on our own. We needed God to take on both sides. We needed God to pass through the pieces and pass condemnation on his own son so that we could receive eternal life apart from any works on our own. Last thing here, the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone exalts God by showing that he alone is the preserver of salvation. God, I love, there's so much we could unpack here in Genesis 15 and throughout Abraham's life, but God, as I mentioned before, God had to continually bring Abraham to places where Abraham recognized that only God could do this. And, and we see the sovereign hand of God throughout Abraham's life. There's 
There's nothing that Abraham could do to obtain his justification. There's nothing Abraham can do to, to bring about the promises that God promises. All he can do is continue to operate in faith, believing that God will do what he said he's going to do. God is the one who is justification, believing that justification is by faith alone, shows and exalts God by showing that he alone is the, the preserver of our salvation. He's the one who continues to preserve us in relationship with him. Galatians 3 Paul's talking about this, this doctrine, and he says, look, look, guys, you're, you're trying to, to begin to, to, to teach that you have to live the law, live under the law, and specifically circumcision in order to be, to be saved but, and to continue in the faith. He says, but don't you see how silly that is? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or does he do it by hearing with faith? And the answer is by hearing with faith. He says, just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Brothers and sisters, Paul calls Genesis 15, 6 the gospel. He says it's the gospel. He says it's it's the good news of how we enter into relationship with God through justification by faith alone, apart from our works. And, And it's the gospel, the good news of how we continue in relationship with God, apart from any works that we do on our own. That's a truth worth some angry emails, right? making sure that we're clear on that. That's a truth worth risking some family relationships to make sure that the people you love are, are clear on it. Hey, you know that you, there's nothing you can do to, to be right before God except believe in his son, Jesus. That's a truth worth dying for. That's a truth worth preserving with your life. There's no greater truth to help you understand how you enter into a relationship with God and continuing relationship with God than this gospel proclaimed in Genesis 15, 6. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news. We're saved by faith, and we, we recognize that even as the writer of James, uh, as, as James in his epistle talks about this, this truth, that this, this faith is not a faith that, that stays dead and dormant, but it's a faith that is alive, that causes us to, to do the works you've called us to do, but none of those works allow us receive initial salvation. And so we, we, we pray that our faith in you would be a faith that encourages others, that changes our lives, that is acceptable to you, then we receive your righteousness through it. And we pray that the righteousness that we receive foreign to ourselves would be a, a righteousness that transforms us and causes us to continue to exalt your name. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.